Welcome to Headed Someplace, a show where strong, inspiring, enduring women share their stories with us. I'm Kara, and today my guest is Lauren Gilliam. Lauren is a foster mom, she's a former teacher, and she's currently in the early stages of the adoption process. She has a huge heart for education, and it's really cool as she explains why God put that on her heart. She also has done a lot of work in inner city Oklahoma City, working with kids from all kinds of traumatic backgrounds, so we talk a lot about that, which is also kind of what pushed her into foster care, and she now runs the nursery program at the church we go to called Frontline Church, so that's how I know her, and I'll just let her start us off today. Okay, so let's start out with telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do in life. Okay, so I am currently the nursery director at Frontline Downtown. So I work with kiddos zero to five, and I also run our foster care and adoptive ministry. So um, we just right now care for the people in our church who are fostering and adopting or people who are interested, um, and we're just trying to figure out where the Lord is going to take that. Yeah, that's awesome. And for those of you that have listened a lot, you know that I go to a church in Oklahoma City called Frontline church, but so we both go to the same church in Oklahoma City, and that's how we know each other, which we don't even know each other super well. This is like going to be our longest conversation. It is. We always get to say hi as you're dropping the kids off. Yeah, exactly. I entrust my kids with her. She's awesome with them. It's so great. Okay, and you came highly recommended. I actually... Before I knew your name, like before you became the nursery director at Frontline, um, I had asked some different people. I always ask people for suggestions of who I should have on the show. And so anyway, I was going back through some from like a year ago and I saw your name. And I was like, oh, I know her. I'll ask her. So <laughs> um, but yeah, so you come, you come highly recommended from a few people. Okay. So first, the first question I like to ask every guest is to tell us a random fact about you that not a lot of people know. Okay, this is something that really very few people know. My favorite holiday is Groundhog Day. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> I told some people the other day and they had the exact same reaction. Um, I don't even I, know when that is. I just thought it was a movie. <laughs> this movie. It, so I love Christmas. I love Thanksgiving. But lately, I mean, for the last 10 to 15 years, those days have become really hard. I mm. love the idea, you know, I love celebrating Jesus at Christmas. But when I was teaching, we had snow days that would always fall on February 2nd, which is Groundhog Day. So it would it just became kind of a day, like a self-care day. I would watch the movie. I would lay in bed all day. I would do nothing. So it's kind of become my own holiday and my own tradition. <laughs> and it's taken on a life of its own. So now I celebrate every year and people think it's weird. And That's kind of awesome. I think I need to adopt that. <laughs> I think I'm going to have a huge party next year and just have everyone come over. We'll just have a crazy, fun, lazy groundhog day. Yes. I <laughs> love that. And actually, as you're talking about that, I'm like, oh, that is like the rest of the holidays have some pressure around them. And not yes. only, you know, like they have the added layer of being hard for certain reasons if you're missing people or whatever. But even that aside, it's like Christmas is stressful. And <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, that sounds wonderful. I like your random fact because I can use it in my life. <laughs> I'm so glad. Okay, so I want to kind of start chronologically with you. I want to hear about why you decided to work with inner city kids and your teaching and then caring for your family members with cancer, fostering, adoption, all of that stuff. So you kind of take us from the beginning of where you want to and we'll go from there. 
So I, um, when I was in high school, I went on a mission trip to inner city Dallas, which seems like kind of a random place. And um, so we just worked with kids. We worked in some housing projects. We um, worked in some food pantries and um, a medical clinic, just really in the heart of a really hard place in Dallas. So, and so you and your family did? You and your parents? Uh, so my family, my church, we all went together. Okay. Cool. And so I just remember thinking like, okay, that's what I want to do. And I was 16 at the time, so it kind of fell by the wayside for a few years. Yeah. And then when I went to college, my second week of college, a friend invited me to a church plant that was happening in the inner city of Oklahoma City in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. So I went with her. Where did you go to college? I went to Oklahoma Christian. Okay, cool. Oh my gosh. Okay, time out. <laughs> Yeah. So I went to Abilene Christian University. So hey. did you grow up Church of Christ? Did. Oh man, we are soul sisters. <laughs> so much to talk about. <laughs> That's amazing. I've had other people on here where we find the same thing. And we're like, oh, you under you understand me yes. and my acapella singing. <laughs> yes. That's so great. That is great. Okay. So we went to like sister universities. And also, do you care telling me how old you are? No, I'm 35. 35. Okay. I'm 31. Mm-hmm. So Hey. It's out there for everybody. I love it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, sorry. <laughs> you were you were going to college and then started doing inner city stuff in Oklahoma City. Ah. Which also one more qualifying question: mm-hmm. Did you grow up in the inner city or did you grow up kind of in the suburbs? Did not. I grew up in the suburbs. Okay. Uh, very middle class. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So I went down to this um, ministry and they were meeting in a house at the time. There were about 40 kids and they came every Sunday night to have a meal and then to do a worship service. And so after that night, I didn't leave. So I was there every Sunday and Thursday for almost eight years. By the time I was a sophomore, I was on staff at this church. And so I was running all of the kids ministry, some of the youth ministry, and then helping just kind of organize different things throughout the week, caring for families. We eventually had a medical clinic and a food pantry and all those things. So um, so I did that then for two years after college as my full-time job. Cool. And what, yeah. was, your, what was your degree in? What were you studying? Uh, my degree was in social work, um, okay. so family studies and social work, and then um, I minored in vocational ministry. Okay, cool. Yeah. When I was working there full time, you know, we had a lot of kids from really, really hard places. And so it became, you know, I was having daily conversations with DHS about families and I was transporting parents to visitations with their kids and, you know, DHS and child welfare kind of became a really big part of my life at that point. I was seeing a lot of abuse. I was seeing a lot of neglect um, Mm. and just getting exposed to a lot of things that in my life previously, I had not been exposed to. Yeah. I had to have multiple kids admitted to um, St. Anthony's um, because of suicidal thoughts or, mm. you know, becoming dangerous to themselves or their families. And mm. so those things just started to really weigh on me yeah. in that, that role. So then um, as my two years kind of wrapped up, I was really praying and looking for what do I do from here? And the one thing that kept coming back to me was literacy. Mm. Liter- was the kind of the gap for all the families that I was working with. Um, I had noticed, you know, I would have to go and help them fill out birth certificates and fill out forms for DHS because they couldn't, they couldn't own. And so that's when I decided to pursue education. Okay. Wow. I just have to say, like, I, (laughs) it feels um, like a foreign world to me. 
Mm-hmm. Like just, I mean, also growing up in the suburbs, like middle class, like just like you think of this maybe in other countries or something. That sounds so terrible that I'm even saying that, but I just, no. you just are not aware. The sa- it was the same for me because I had, I, you know, I went on that mission trip to Dallas and I was like, wow, this is a very unique thing. And then realized, no, actually it's happening mm. less than 10 miles from where I grew up. Okay. Um, and is and- it because kids um, weren't going to school or not, or the schools weren't teaching well or kind of a mixture? Like just yeah, It's kind of a combination of both. So, okay. um, you know, our kids for the most part were going to school. You know, most of the literacy issues that I was dealing with were with adults, with parents. Okay. And so I was helping parents, trying to get them referred to literacy programs and get them help. But there were, by that point, they had so many other needs that outweighed the desire to become literate that it just, you know, they couldn't get out of the hole enough to be able to pursue that. So, but you're right, it was quite a shock to me, just really less than 10 miles from my house. We could just drive down the road and and the Capitol Hill neighborhood is right there. And the, the level of poverty and the level of hurt and just the depth of grief and loss in that neighborhood is is unbelievable mm-hmm. and it spreads across our whole city we were picking up kids within like a 20 mile radius oh. um so it was a real learning curve for me which really formed the trajectory of the rest of my life yeah going into teaching yeah so then i decided to pursue education i went and got my alternative certification and prayed a lot about it and decided to pursue a job on the east side of Oklahoma City. Um, I had a few of my kids from Capitol Hill that were attending school at FD Moon. And so that was the first place I called. Okay. And I went to FD Moon and she hired me on the spot. Wow. Okay. Like, this, this is where we're going. That's awesome. So it was, so I, <laughs> I taught fifth grade. That was not what were I was. You, were you scared? Like about teaching or not? I was terrified. And I, looking back now, I should have been more terrified. (laughs) I walked into a classroom with no supplies, no books, no curriculum, never been a teacher before. I'm like stressed out right now. (laughs) Showed up the first day, had a great teammate. He was in his 60s at the time and um, kind of deferred to me on lesson planning. And so I was pretty much kind of running the show by myself. And looking back now, I should have been nervous. I should have been probably more afraid than I was, but I didn't know any better. So I just walked in on the first day and just went for it. That's awesome. I prayed a lot. I worked crazy hours trying to figure out how to be a teacher and how to love on kids from really hard places. Mm. That first year in my classroom, I had two kids that were already involved in gang activity. One of them was running drugs. One of them was doing some other stuff. I don't even know. This is fifth grade. Great. Yeah. So I had some, just some really hard situations that I was navigating and then also then having to prepare them for a big test at the end of the year and teach them all the things they need to learn. And the Lord granted me a lot of grace that year in making inroads with families. And I still talk to some of those families today. Mm. Um, I went into Walmart a few months ago and I saw one of my former students checking people out. And I walked over and she screamed and got her friend from behind the counter who was also in my class. And we just stood there and hugged and cried. I just have like tears in my eyes right now. (laughs) It was was such a beautiful moment because I, I mean, I told them, I said, girls, I had no idea what I was doing. I don't know. I don't know what we did that year. I don't know what I taught you. And they said, but you changed our life. And I, I still don't believe that necessarily that they 
it meant a lot to them. So I still get to see them every now and then. So sweet. And into the grocery store. Um, But they're both going to college this year and just like taking care of themselves and living on their own and doing great things. I'm so proud of them. So. So awesome. I love that. It's so true. Like even me coming from a a stable home, teachers that make an impact on you, you never forget. And it's like one year of your whole entire life, but you're spending so much time with them that they can make or break you. Absolutely. So that's really cool that you were able to have that um, relationship with so many kids. Yeah, it was so great. So I've, I've actually seen about three or four of them and we've all had kind of similar interactions. There's always tears, but we always just hug and catch up. And so it's been great because they're all in their 20s now after my first year. Wow. So I continue to teach at FD Moon. I taught there two years. Our school was not making the progress that they expected us to make. We were kind of told, hey, we're probably going to be shutting the school down. It was kind of up in the air. We didn't know what was going to happen. And so I pursued a job in a different district and um, got hired in Putnam City. And the dynamics changed a little bit. Um, Most of my students were illegal immigrants from different places, mostly Spanish speakers. And our school was 100% free and reduced lunch. So every child was living in some some sort of poverty. Wait, what did you say? 100% what? A free and reduced lunch. Free and reduced? Yes. Okay. I've never even heard that term. Does that mean I'm ignorant? (laughs) No, that's how they measure levels essentially. So it's, you know, it's based on income and then the kiddos that can get a reduced rate for a lunch or a free lunch. I see. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's, so we were a hundred percent poverty. Wow. And so that's where I really, I really grew as a teacher and an educator and I fell in love with reading even more than I had. Mm-hmm. And what so, grade were you teaching there? Fifth? I taught fifth. I okay. moved right over to fifth and taught fifth there for three more years. Mm-hmm. And uh, my last year, I taught writing along with science and social studies. And I just kind of fell in love with that whole writing and reading and literacy, which is why I went into teaching in the first place. Mm-hmm. But I decided to pursue a master's in reading that year. And so I started, I went to UCO and went back to school. So I was working all day and then going to school at night, kind of looking for some ways to kind of form a career path that wouldn't just be in the classroom for the rest of my career. Cool. Also just because I love the science of reading and all the things that it takes to get your brain to figure out how to read. It's really Mm. impressive how the Lord put all those things together. So, yeah, so I pursued that. And then um, I was moved to third grade because we had a big reading push coming down from the state department. By fifth grade, they're expected to be able to pass the state reading test. But most of my kids, because of language barriers, because of just... Mm, Sure, good grief. They have an extra layer. Yeah. So just because of overall lack of early intervention and education focused by families, most of my kids were behind. So Mm -hmm. I was teaching kids that knew zero words to kids who were reading on a fifth grade level. Okay. Wow. Just trying to get them prepared for, um, for a reading test at the end of the year, which was really challenging, but it was great to be able to use that knowledge and just love on kids in that way. Yeah. So, um, I had some really, really tough classes, kiddos from really, really hard places that couldn't function in the classroom because they were having so much trouble with the trauma in their lives that they couldn't, they couldn't function through. So I had a kid who is probably the most special kid I've ever had in a classroom and will ever have if I ever Mm -hmm. go back. He just had a really hard life without going into too many details, just 
the trauma in his life basically caused him not to be able to speak, not to be able to function. He melted down all the time. I remember hearing stories about him in kindergarten. They would have to call the fire department because he would lock himself in the bathroom or one time he stabbed a teacher and she had to get a tetanus shot because Mm -hmm. all these things happened. And so the first day of school, I am standing at the door and I see him walking down the hall and I honestly thought, oh, please keep walking. Please keep walking. Don't <laughs> the door. <laughs> because you knew that he had already, like, yes, stabbed a teacher. I knew him well from years of just uh-huh. seeing this. And so, of course, they stop at my door. And um, his mom just says to me, he's probably going to have a fit today. You know how he is. Puts him in the classroom and closes the door and walks away. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, all right, this is what we're doing. So yeah, we're going to do this. <laughs> he stood in the corner of the room for two hours on the first day of school. Wouldn't sit down, wouldn't come to my table, wouldn't do anything. He just stood in the corner and the Lord was just like, let him do it. Let him stand there. That is all that matters. He's in the classroom. He's safe. Just let him stand there. So I did. Eventually he moved to sit at my table And he sat at my table for about three weeks before he was comfortable enough to go to a desk. I didn't push him. And then, you know, as I kind of unpack everything and figure out a little bit more about him, I realized he can't read anything. He can barely speak. So, you know, I think he had been in lots of situations where people would just tell him to do something and he couldn't do it. And so his reaction was just to blow up every time. So he became very violent, very aggressive. And so we, by the grace of God, bonded just by him sitting at my table. And from then on, the kids I had in that classroom were some of the best kids I've ever had. And they surrounded him like nothing I've ever seen. They loved him so well. If they knew he was having a hard day, they would help him do things. They would talk to him. They would try to help, you know, if he would point at things for them, they would help translate. And so if he was mad at anyone else in the building, it was okay because they could call me and I could come and help him work through it. Mm -hmm. If he was mad at me for any reason, we had to call the police. <laughs> Happened wow. three times here. And we had to call campus police every time. We had to evacuate the classroom. You know, there were a few times that I couldn't understand what he was saying. And so when that happened, he was just like, okay, the one person who gets me does not understand me right now. And it became a total meltdown. And we would have to campus police to come and take him home. Wow. So, um, and that honestly continued into, I had him two years ago. And then last year I was still at the school, but I was out of the classroom. I was doing English as a second language. So working on reading skills with kids in small groups. And so then now he's about like seventh grade or eighth? He's, he's fifth grade now. I, oh that was, yeah, that's right. That was third. Okay. Last year I was able to, he would just come to my classroom anytime he had a hard time or was having, you know, a struggle. And honestly, we can talk more about when I transitioned out of teaching, but when I took the job at Frontline, he was the biggest thing besides my foster sons that was saying, no, you can't do this. You have mm-hmm. to stay with him. And I'm good friends with his teacher this year. And so she can FaceTime me. She can call me. There've been a couple of times that I've actually left the church to go up there. Mm-hmm. if he's having a hard day and I get to go see him every Friday. And he is just, he's doing so great. And it's just all by the grace of God that he allowed us to bond that year and give him a secure attachment. And at one point during that year, there was a concern that he was going to be placed into foster care. Mm -hmm. And so that is what really motivated me to get my foster care license. Okay. Before we go into foster care, can you, because there's some of us that have like zero frame of reference of what you mean when they come from really hard places. You don't have to give any 
names or anything, but can you give some scenarios of like what you mean by they came from hard homes or hard places? Sure. So um, I'm thinking specifically abuse and neglect of the child, of the parents in the home. Um, The student I was talking about, there was a lot of domestic violence. Um, He would watch his mom get beaten almost daily. Mm. There was a lot of food insecurity, not knowing where our next meal is going to come from. Just seeing things. I have a lot of kids that would witness shootings on the way to school. They would witness people being arrested on the way to school, things like that. Mm, Yeah. I remember like not having really heard many of these stories and having a friend in our small group, two friends that worked in the foster care system and um, just talking about like babies being left in their home and found in the dark with sitting in their car seat for who knows how long Mm -hmm. and things like that. They're like, what in the world? How, how, you know, like it's, it's so, so that's why I wanted to get some examples for people to see like just really things that a lot of us have never even thought, you know, known existed or it could, could be possible from somebody, from a parent, you know? Mm -hmm. So that, that's what nudged you into getting your foster care. Is it a license or what? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. It had been on my heart for a really long time, and I had kind of begun the process early in my 20s and realized very quickly, there is no way that I'm in a place that I'm ready for this right now. And so my last couple of years of teaching, lots of life circumstances with my family had kind of made it where I was in a place where I could foster. I bought a house. Um, my roommate had just moved out, and so I felt the Lord saying, okay, it's time. And then things with my student kind of escalated. And so I really prayed about it. And I remember telling the Lord, which, you know, that's always your first mistake, like telling the Lord, this is what I'm going to do. But I said, you know, I'm going to save this amount of money. And if I do that, then I'll consider it. And so I'm telling you, I saved down to the dollar, the amount of money that I said I would need to be able to start this thing. And then I said, okay, okay, well, why don't I go talk to my principal? And if he says I can move out of the classroom, then I'll consider. And so I walked up to his office and I sat down and said, hey, I've been thinking about something. And he said, do you want to move next year out of the classroom? <laughs> like, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> he said, yeah, I'd like for you to teach small groups and do reading only. And so that just freed up hours and hours in my schedule because it's just such a different job. And so I said, all right. Like, all right, Lord, I guess we're doing this. Perfect. Yep. So I signed up that afternoon and then opened my home the last day of school a couple of years ago. And so I opened on a Saturday morning and I had two little boys in my home by Saturday, about one in the morning. Wow. You know, I thought all of these other things in my life had rocked my world and changed the trajectory of everything. But that was the most life-changing experience. Okay, I wanted to take a quick break to tell you guys a few things. One is a cool way you can help this podcast to keep going. Patreon is a place where you can become a patron of the arts, so to speak, and pledge a certain dollar amount for each episode that I release. So right now I release an episode every other week. So if you pledge a dollar per episode, that's $2 a month to help keep this podcast going. And if I don't release an episode, you don't pay anything. You can set a monthly max so that you don't go over your budget. But it's just a way to help make this podcast happen without running ads. And right now I am planning to release one more episode after this one. And then I'll take a break. So I typically release episodes in series of eight. And so I'm going to take a break soon, reevaluate, and hopefully bring you guys another eight episodes later this year. 
If you want to support this podcast on Patreon, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash headed someplace. I will also have links to all this up on my website, headedsomeplace.com, where you can see the episode show notes that my lovely new friend, Mariah Ross, volunteered to write up for me. So thank you again, Mariah, for volunteering your time. And you guys go to headedsomeplace.com or patreon.com slash headedsomeplace. Last thing is I am going to have a really big announcement for you guys next week on the very last episode of the podcast for this season. So make sure you stay tuned for that. So were you were you really nervous starting? I, yes, I was incredibly nervous. I sitting down to do all that paperwork is overwhelming. You know, you have to go through this list of of disabilities that you will accept and, you know, kids, which problems you'll say yes to, you know, you'll take a kid that has a stealing problem or who has an arson problem. You know, you have to say yes or no. Wait, what's that? What's arson? When you light things on fire. Oh gosh. Right? So you take a kid with, that has struggled with this in the past and it's just a really daunting process. And so. Well, and I I feel like as a woman, it would be scary to do that without like a husband around too. So yeah, that that adds a whole other layer. I'm single (laughs) by myself. And so I, um, I sat down with my parents one night over dinner and I, we were thinking, I said, okay, I'm going to do ages six to 10. That's what I've taught. That's what I know. I felt really comfortable with that. And we were just sitting there talking and praying and like looking over this list. And I said, okay. I think I'm actually going to lower my ages. I'm going to do two to 10. I'm going to change that. And I ended up with a two and a four-year-old. <laughs> because I think, you know, those boys needed me and I needed them even more. Mm-hmm. Um, we just didn't know, you know, we had no idea what the Lord was doing. So mm-hmm. it was such a weird process because I was so excited. It was like, I'm finally going to have babies in my home. And I've been so excited about this. And I remember I got certified the week before Mother's Day and somebody came around at our school and I know they had the best of intentions and where they were like congratulating all of the, all of our pregnant teachers and people who were expecting kids and telling them happy Mother's Day. And they just skipped over me and they knew where I was in the process and knew all of that, but it just was kind of, it just didn't register that I was feeling this way too. And I was so expectant and excited. Mm. I didn't realize until that moment, like, oh, this is going to be different. This is going to be a harder road than I even expected because it's not what most people are called to. And so um, I just remember feeling like, oh, well, that that really hurt. Now I'm, I want to be excited, but nobody else is really that excited. And so mm. I didn't really know how to navigate that. And then I was also terrified because I'd never had kids in my home and it wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to bring them home from the hospital and raise them and teach them all of the things from the day they were born. It would be yeah, bring kids with trauma and different things. So I just remember sitting in their room going through all of the emotions, expectancy and fear and terror and mm-hmm. just like I was so excited but I just didn't know what what's going to be in front of me so um the night before they came I remember just laying on my couch thinking this could be the last night I'm in my home I have no idea what I'm going to get a call I have no idea who's going to show up tomorrow um and just feeling so many emotions and then the Lord just gave me such peace and I went to bed at like eight o'clock like I'm going to just 
go to bed and rest and got a phone call at 11 o'clock that these boys had been brought into care and that they were going to bring them over. Hmm. And then a crazy journey started from there. Wow. And were they, are they siblings? They are siblings. Okay. They, uh, they actually, there were three siblings at the time. Now there are four, all boys and another family at Frontline actually were able to get the little brother. So I have the two older boys at two and four and they had um, an 11 month old baby and we didn't even know each other. We ended up with the same caseworker through Anna's house and both were members at Frontline. And so we have been able to forge a bond, you know, their kids call me family. I consider them family. We just, you know. We're in some of the darkest times and the best times of our lives at the same time. So yeah. Okay. So do you still have these boys with you? No, they went home to their mom in October. Okay. So um, yeah, there was, without going into too much detail, it was just kind of, you know, everything is up in the air in foster care. Reunification is always the goal. And that is what I went into it. That was my heart for reunification, wanting to make sure that these boys got to live with their mom. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we are human and our flesh says other things. And Mm so there was some time early on in the case, really for almost a year that we weren't, the case was just not moving. It was just, you know, kind of like, well, we don't know what's happening. We don't know where these boys are going. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was really easy for my heart to, you know, I, we connected so deeply early on, I mean, they started calling me mom day two in my home. Mm. And we just loved, you know, we loved each other so much. And so um, we got to a point last July where um, their mom fought for her sobriety so hard. She fought so hard and she has been sober for a year and a half. And I'm so proud of her. Um, And so we thought that the boys were going to be with us longer. We just, we just didn't know. And then um, in about September, um, the judge said, okay, we'd like to have them home by October. And so we worked through that um, and just kind of helped them transition home. And it was beautiful and it was so, so, so hard. Mm. Um, But, you know, just, I thought, you know, I'm going to, it's going to take me some time to connect with these boys. It's going to take me some time to, to really think of them as my own. And the first day they were in my home, the oldest screamed for almost 12 hours straight, Mm. just nonstop. We couldn't, we tried to take a bath. We couldn't do that. We couldn't, I mean, we couldn't go outside. We didn't have shoes. We tried to go buy shoes. He ran away, almost got out into the street. I mean, you know, just all these things. I just was so, so far out of my element. I had no idea what I was doing. People in our church and my community just brought me flip-flops and brought us dinner and just showed up so hard for us. And so that night I went to bed and I remember saying out loud, Lord, I cannot do this. I'm going to have to call someone tomorrow. And it was Memorial Day. And I was like, no one's in the office. I can't do this for another day. And so he was just like, one step at a time, just take one step at a time. And so my first boundary that we set that morning was, we're going to sit at the table for breakfast. That was the only boundary we had. Do whatever else you want all day, but we're going to sit at the table (laughs) for breakfast. And at that point, they were just like, oh, like you could just see kind of the wheel started turning and they're like, okay, we're going to do this. We can do this. So we sit at the table and then about 30 minutes later, they called me mom and it was over. It was over. (laughs) We belonged to each other and we were, we were, we got, you know, we ended up doing lots of therapy. We went to um, mental health services. We went to OT. We went to speech. We, you know, they just had a lot of developmental delays and I learned a lot. The Lord taught me a lot about how to be an advocate. And I thought, 
I knew how to do that because I'd done it in my career for so long, but I learned how to really fight for them and fight for them in the best way, not what would benefit me. And that was really hard at the beginning. Um, I had a, an Instagram foster friend that I made throughout this process that encouraged me to advocate with integrity and not advocate out of fear. And that mm. to switch for me because I had been, you know, you get to the point where the fear honestly is just losing them because you've grown to love them so much. And so mm. there were a lot of things that I advocated for looking back now that I'm thinking I was advocating out of fear because I knew what was going to happen. And so when I started advocating out of integrity for them and for their mom and for their family, it really changed our trajectory. It gave me lots more inroads with their mom. We connected a lot better. Um, so it's just, it is a hard process Man. and a hard process that the Lord never intended. And so, you know, it's hard to care for someone else's kids and it's hard to share kids and it's hard to, um, it's hard to send kids home when you love them so much and they've become a part of everything you do and who you are. And, um, but man, the Lord was so faithful looking back in those moments. I didn't feel it every day. Um, but looking back now, I don't know how I made it through except by the grace of God. Yeah. Man, and as you're talking about like advocating out of integrity instead of fear, I think that's something that every single one of us parents in whatever form that takes on can benefit from because really what I hear when you explain it is you're you're advocating like it's actually a sacrifice for you to advocate with integrity because you're sacrificing what you want for the better of the kid and their family. And I think that's something I wasn't aware of until I had friends in foster care. And I always thought like you foster to adopt. And they're like, no, that's the opposite of what we we want. Like we want people that will come alongside the families and the parents and help them to get better so that they can have their kids and so that their kids can be raised with their with their families. But man, how how hard that must be to like become their mom and then send them away. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot imagine. And I, I'm curious, like with you talking about like setting the first boundary of like, we're going to sit down and eat at the table and you just like, kind of, this is what's going to happen. Um, do you feel like that they started to maybe behave isn't the right word, but feel more secure having certain boundaries, knowing like, okay, she does love it. Like as they learned, you love them, but you also have to like discipline them. Like, how did they, how did they respond to that? Absolutely. They, it, it could tell that they just felt more comfortable in that moment. Um, kids need boundaries. There's so much research out there that shows us that kids need boundaries. When I started to set those boundaries a little bit, just, just a little bit at a time, it really deepened our connection. And then it allowed because things got much harder over the next few months. Um, and became, you know, we became very aggressive and violent. And um, so in those moments when we are in the deepest, darkest throes of just a huge meltdown, they had that structure and they remembered, okay, she does love me. She's doing this for my, for my best interest. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, it doesn't feel that way. So it helped us to navigate some trickier situations later because they knew that I was setting safe and healthy boundaries. We talked a lot about being safe. I learned a lot about saying yes more than no in those times. Um, that was a really hard thing for me because as a teacher, no is a whole lot easier because no kept you out of making messes. It kept you from getting too much chaos in the classroom. So saying no to things just made life easier. But then 
as a parent, especially with kids from a hard place, um, a lot of times you just need to say yes and make the mess and mm. know that there's going to be a safe boundary, but there's also going to be a lot of really fun things. And so that taught me a lot also just kind of walking through, you know, how do I set a safe boundary while still allowing them to be kids and navigate this, all of these emotions that they're feeling. And um, those boundaries really help them a lot. Mm, that's so good. I had a friend tell me too, right? Whenever I had my first boy, my first kid, she said that they in their in their home realized they had been saying a lot of basically infinite amount of no's and very limited amount of yeses and that they needed to swap that around. Like there's there's pretty much an infinite yes and some and some particular no's, but like most of the time Oh, and man, I'm so guilty of this, especially lately. I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Um, and it really is all for my convenience. Yes. Oh. That was a challenge that someone gave me in one of our therapies. They were like, just try it. Just try to say yes more than you say no today. And it was a game changer because we still had safe boundaries, but there was a whole lot more to work with. Yeah, that's sweet. Do you still get to see those boys? I do occasionally. Um, it's been a while since I've seen them. It's a really tricky road to navigate yeah. what that looks like after the boys are home and that relationship is totally different. And so I'm really just praying through that and kind of um, reaching out when, when I can and just checking in. And honestly, I've gotten to the place where now I just kind of text their mom once or twice a month and just say, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you guys. And if she responds and gives me some information, that's great. And if not, she knows that I'm still thinking of them and I love all of them. And I was able to actually meet with her. Um, I went to take my youngest a birthday present and they were not home from daycare yet. And so um, I just was able to talk to her with no kids for mm. probably the first time since I've known her for almost two years. And we had the best conversation. Just I was able to tell her, like, I'm so proud of you for fighting for this. I love you, not just them. I love you. I love your mom. I love this whole family that you've created. I want to be a part of all of your lives. It was just a really beautiful moment. And so, you know, we're just kind of still in that. I don't really know what it's going to look like as the boys grow up, but um, we're just praying that we get to be a part of their lives as they get older and just love on their whole family. Yeah. Yeah. Were your parents, I'm guessing, close with them too? They were extremely close. So I'm an only child. And so um, they were their first and only grandkids. And so they just, they loved those boys more than anything. They would help me take them to school. They would help if I was, if one of them was sick, they would stay home with them. Um, and then they would just take them to the zoo, take them to the science museum, just so sweet. spend time with them. It was great. It was really fun to watch them in that role. That is that is super sweet. I noticed that you keep saying like we are or like we and I'm like you must be talking about your parents. <laughs> oh, your whole family. Speaking of her family, something to note that happened right before she started fostering while she was still teaching. So Lauren is from a relatively small extended family. There are only nine of them and they're all very close as Lauren was an only child. She only had one cousin. And within the span of four years, Lauren watched five of the nine pass away from cancer and or dementia. She was one of the caretakers for them along with her parents. And she said that basically they were planning a funeral every six months. Ugh, I just, it sounds so awful. Um, she moved in with her grandparents who had dementia at one point to be there during the night while she went to grad school and just to make sure they were safe. But this is just a little part of her story I want you to know that was also weighing on her as she was teaching and fostering. 
And we're about to get into some of the serious effects of the grief and the loss that Lauren experienced. So I wanted to make sure you had this little info too tucked away, even though the majority of our conversation was talking about some other aspects of trauma that Lauren experienced. But this will be helpful for you in setting up the rest of our conversation. My family went from nine members to four in less than four years. My mother lost her entire immediate family in like less than 18 months. You know, people that have been my whole world, just my whole family was just kind of reeling from that. And, you know, we knew a little bit about grief, but when it hits you like that in that rapid succession, there's no way to really get to the root of it. All that happened and we were dealing with the fallout. I um, started fostering about a year later. And so um, I entered a season of what I now know as secondary trauma. Um, I had dealt with it a lot working at the church and working in schools and seeing trauma that other people were dealing with, other families, and just thinking, well, it's not happening to me, not my trauma, so I can just pour out and pour out and pour out, and it's not going to affect me. Hmm. And here I am 10 to 12 years later, having some kiddos in my home that have some pretty severe effects from neglect in their life, just kind of dealing with just lots of things that, again, were not happening to me. It wasn't my body. It wasn't my trauma. But you walk into that and their secondary trauma is a real thing. Yeah, and you're, ta- you're still taking it on as your emotional like problem. <laughs> exactly. So, so I fostered the voice for almost 18 months just kind of putting one foot in front of the other and dealing with it and walking through it every day because I had no other choice. We didn't sleep for a really long time. Um, My youngest had a lot of night terrors. And even if he didn't fall asleep until one in the morning, he was up at five every day. Mm. So I didn't sleep for a good nine months or so. It's like having a newborn. (laughs) It is. It is. So, um, I was sitting with the boys therapist, um, you know, she was just kind of working with them and she would give me parenting tips and we met once a month, just the two of us. And so one day we were sitting in a session with one of the boys and she just looked at me and she said, have you thought about taking an antidepressant? And I was like, so many things like, no, no, there's no way, you know, like I'm fine. Everything's fine. And she just said, she said, I just am listening to you talk about all the things that you've had to do this week. Like, you know, all of the court dates and all the appointments and all of the heavy things that you've done just today and the fact that you're not sleeping. And she said, it doesn't have anything to do with you not being okay. Your brain chemistry is not okay. Mm. You are under an amount of stress that no one should be under ever. And she said, and it is daily for you. And on top of that, you're not sleeping. I think you need to consider it. I think you need to go see someone. And she said, you can, I can refer you to someone. And so she did. I was able to get into a therapist um, and just kind of start. I just thought I was fine for mm-hmm. so long. <laughs> um, so I started going to therapy and processing a lot of these things and telling stories. And I ended up changing therapists right after the boys went home. And we started talking through things. And I actually looked over and her mouth was kind of open, just like a gape, like, mm-hmm. what? Oh my goodness, I can't believe you've, you know, I've ne- you've never processed through any of this. So, um, when the boys left, I I knew it was going to be hard. But again, it's a unique situation. It's kind of like going back to when I got them. I was excited and expectant, but nobody else understood that because it's not the typical trajectory for having a child. Mm-hmm. So, when they left, I heard everything from, well, they weren't yours. Um, you signed up for this and, you know, you just need to trust the Lord. It's going to be fine. And just kind of 
almost dismissing my grief. And so for a while I thought, well, I'm not allowed to be sad then because Mm -hmm. they're right. They weren't mine. They went to their mom. That's where they're supposed to be. And so after sitting down with this therapist in the first session, I just told her some things and she looked at me and she said, you are absolutely allowed to grieve. Mm -hmm. This, this is like losing a child. It's not, it's not any different because they weren't biologically yours or because, you know, this was the plan all along. You need to grieve like you have lost your children because that's what happened. And so just hearing her say that gave me so much freedom. Um, I was having migraines every day to the point where I couldn't lift my head. And I was like, what is going on? And she said, that is grief. And we're going to work through it. And so just hearing her like give me a pass to feel those things that I've been feeling for so long and then being able to then unpack all the things that had happened over the last almost 20 years, Mm. it gave me so much freedom to just okay, like grief and trauma are real. And even though a lot of these things didn't directly happen to me, those things still affect me. And it's okay to seek help and it's okay to be on medication. It's okay to not be okay. And that's given me so much freedom with other people and kind of being open. And that is where our foster and adoptive care ministry kind of flourished. I just was able to say like, I'm not okay. And people were seeing me not be okay. And so other people that are also not okay were coming to me and were able to say, I'm feeling this too. Let's connect. Let's form a group. Let's get together. Because you know, I don't think that anyone has bad intentions, but, you know, you can't judge someone for what they're grieving. Mm -hmm. Our feelings are valid. And, you know, when people look at you and say, well, oh, you shouldn't be grieving that you should be fine by now. That does so much damage. Mm -hmm. So I just want, you know, I've just tried to open up to people and just say, hey, I'm not okay. We should be allowed to talk about this. We Mm -hmm. should it's okay to to be feeling these things no matter what no matter if it's your cat that passed away or mm-hmm. you know your friend is sick you can grieve those things because it is a real feeling that's right yeah it's so good it's okay to not be okay yeah yeah we live um in a world and especially with social media like we glorify being not only okay but like thriving mm-hmm. we all want to like thrive and we want to look like we're Thriving. We want to feel like we're thriving. We don't even. It may not even be about your appearance. It may be you really just. Everybody else is thriving. I want to thrive. Um. So that's, that's a good word. It's okay to not be okay, and um, just that permission to grieve and to feel those things, which, kind of goes to one question I did want to ask you is you've seen so much abuse and neglect from your teaching, from your inner city work, from your foster care. Um, how do you see all that and see parents um, just doing horrible things and people getting away with horrible things and affecting future generations and, and still believe that God is good and, and is at work? That's such a good question. Um, I really didn't have an answer to that until I had the boys. And I remember being face down on my bedroom floor one morning, just praying because I was at my wit's end, which happened, you know, twice a day at least. <laughs> yeah. So I was just saying, like, Lord, I, I don't understand this. I cannot do this. I want to, you know, I was also wanting to save everybody. I want to help everyone. Why don't you give me that power to just save all these kids? Or why don't you just do it? You know, why don't you right. just save kids? And he said to me so clearly, he said, you know, 
you can't save all of them. I can, but I have put you in the place to save these two. Hmm. I have put you in the place to rescue these two and to care for these two and to help them for this finite amount of time. It may not be forever, but I've given them to you for this amount of time. And the freedom in knowing that I didn't have to bear the burden of everyone Hmm. um, was so good. And then I've struggled honestly with, with God being good in all of this. I remember saying one night early on in, in our case, if they go home, I don't know how I believe that you're still good. Mm. And that then turned into over a year of me saying, okay, you are good. You've done so much. You've been so faithful. You are good. Even, even when they go home, you're still good. And then there were, you know, some concerns that came up and I was like, well, now I don't believe you're good. If they go home, <laughs> and something happens, I, I don't know if I believe it. And he just kept showing me every day. No, I am. I am good. I am faithful. I have a plan. Um, and so even you know, in the past few weeks, the boys have been gone almost six months and um, I'm looking to pursue adoption and I've gotten a lot of doors slammed in my face. And I said to the Lord one day, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be burdened for these kids anymore. It's not fair. I don't want to hurt this bad. And then we've been studying the Beatitudes as a church and the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm sitting through the Sermon on the Beatitudes and the Lord is just like, okay, here you go. I'm going to, I'm going to drop this for you. So please listen. Um, you know, just walking through, talking about how Jesus mourns, how Jesus mourns for those who are brokenhearted. And so should we. He's given us this burden to carry because he also mourns for them. And so, it, you know, he just reminded me, it breaks my heart too. And it's never going to be okay until we're together. And so hmm. I want your heart to break for this and I'm going to carry you through it. And I'm going to be faithful the whole time. And it's going to be brutal sometimes. But we, you know, we've got to be brokenhearted for, for the things in our world that break Jesus' heart. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very real thing. So he's just given me a lot of affirmation in the last few weeks that he is so good. and He is so faithful, even when it feels like I am not going to be able to get up and mm-hmm. carry through another day. He is still there and he is still faithful and good. Yeah. It. It is something where like seeing all that can feel so overwhelming as far as like, where do you even start? And I love how he was like, I've given you these kids for this time. And to me, it's like, I'm hearing that too with my two kids. I've given you these kids for this time, not forever. Like one, I mean, people are going to think I'm morbid, but like one of, we're all going to die eventually. Like, and we don't know when that is. And so I don't know. I feel like that's even a sweet reminder for me of like, I've given you these two for however long, you know? And so to me, it reminds me of how special it is that I have them. And I'm so sorry for that you've had to feel that loss because I can't imagine losing my kids and that's what you have felt. And so, um, and then just hearing that was just in the last six months, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's still so fresh. I don't know how you're not a crying mess this whole entire time. But um, I love hearing how he's how he showed you like basically like enough faith for today, like to believe you're good today. And you've shown me and I I even look back to the times of my deepest depression after losing my mom. And and I've told people even recently, I was like, worship is different for me now. Like when I sing, you're a good, good father. It's because I'm looking back at the times where I was laying on the floor for hours thinking, when is this going to be over? I can't, I'm never going to be myself again. I can't, um, I'm never going to smile or laugh again. I can't do this. And uh, 
just zero motivation to do anything, just laying there for hours and seeing like I have flashbacks and like he didn't leave me. He was there and he brought me through that and I have smiled again and I have laughed again and my life is full again, you know. Um, So I think just seeing God's faithfulness as he walks with you through the tears, through the pain, through the laying on the floor (laughs) and doing nothing um, and just the way that the Lord validates our grief because he too grieves is sweet. Oh, yes. I, the story of Lazarus, someone shared it with me the day before the boys left. And I had read that story a hundred times. I knew that story, but I missed the most important part where Jesus stops and sits in the grief with them before he goes. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows the next step, but he sits with his sisters and cries for his friend. And he grieves with them in that moment. And then he takes the next step. But I just, that moment where he stops. I'm telling you, that's what got me out of bed. Yeah. So mornings, just knowing that he was sitting in it with me mm. and he felt it too. And he cared enough to sit in that small moment with me is huge. Right. And that he wasn't being like, come on, just trust me. I've got this. Like, why are you crying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so sweet. He mourns and he is with us and all of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you the last question that I ask every guest. If you could go back in time five or 10 years and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? That's such a great question. I would tell myself, honestly, what we said over and over, it's okay to not be okay. Because I just didn't know. I thought I had to hold it together. I thought I had to be perfect. I thought I had to be on all the time. And I don't. Mm -hmm. And the Lord is there in those moments, just like when you do have it all together. So there would be so much freedom if I had just known it's okay to not be okay. Mm, yes. And it's hard too, because I mean, I even remember when my mom passed away and everyone was like, wow, you're so strong. You're so strong. Cause in the hospital room, God gave me extra grace and strength. And I mean, I cried, but I was like, okay, she's, you know, I don't know. It was just different. And, but then even just hearing that um, made me think, oh, I got to be strong so everyone will respect me, you know? And so I'm careful now to, when I see someone being strong, walking through fire, I'm like, man, you are so strong, but it's also okay to not be. <laughs> That's so good. And we're not That's meant so to be. And those tensions are killing me lately. Everything, I'm just really living in tensions. It's okay to be strong and fight for what you believe in and really power through by the grace of God, but it's also okay to crumble and let him hold you. Yeah. And it's just living in those tensions is, is a hard place to live. That's right. Yep. Lauren did share with me that she's actually in the early stages of adoption right now. She's heard a lot of no's. She's had a lot of doors slammed in her face and so many days where it's been so frustrating. But she knows that God already knows who her child is and that he or she will be in her home at just the right time. So she's learning to trust God even in the waiting. You know, I did hear that a lot and a lot in my seasons of grief. Just you just got to trust the Lord more, which is true. But also, you know, it's not like trusting the Lord is a light switch that we flip on and off. It is right. process. And I know that you know that in dealing with all of your grief. And we trust the Lord. We know that he's good. But our hearts have to do a lot of work to believe that and to really live in that every day. And when people just kind of flippantly told me, well, just trust the Lord and everything will be better. Well, actually, there's a lot of work that goes into that. that there's a lot, right. of, lot of work that goes into that. So. That's right. Yep. And there's things we've built up our whole entire lives that we don't even realize a lot of times, which is why I so recommend therapy to everybody who <laughs> go see a counselor. So many things have been have been uncovered, lies that I've believed about God 
that I don't even realize I'm believing. You know, I, I can say it all day with my mouth, but then the way that I act or behave shows otherwise. <laughs> I don't trust him. So I need to take control. I need to take things into my own hands because he's not working fast enough or he doesn't care or he's not going to do what I want. <laughs> exactly. And I think what I want's better. So man, there's all kinds of stuff. Messy. Yeah. Trusting the Lord is it's messy. Yes, exactly. Ladies and gents, let me know that you listen to this show. Find me over on Instagram at Z. That's K-A-R-A-D-A-W-N-Z. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you haven't already, take a minute to go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people to find this show and hopefully be more encouraged by these women's stories and their, their just powerful lives. So special thanks today for music from thelightparademusic.com and Frontline Music produced by Dustin Ragland. And episode show notes written by Mariah Ross. Thank you, Mariah. You are my hero. Thank you guys for listening. And I hope today you feel a little less alone and a little more encouraged.